before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please consider supporting us there. It helps us keep the podcast going. If you sign up at patreon.com slash always take notes, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a sheaf of successful magazine pitches. Rachel's going to tell you a bit more about our latest Patreon. Our latest Patreon is Christopher Clark, who is a journalist looking to do more long form work. He's found always take notes to be interesting and useful, which is great to hear. Uh, Good luck with all of your writing endeavours going forward, Chris. We also this year have launched a new tier on Patreon for our most generous supporters. If you sign up here, you get two months trial membership to the automated transcription service Otter. This is worth $26. It's a service that I use in my work and I find really uh, invaluable for handling interviews in a much quicker and more efficient way. You also get a series of mini episodes featuring past guests from the show answering a series of really candid questions. Our current episode is with Ollie Franklin Wallace, a magazine journalist formerly of Wired. I tell you what, the, the best advice I did get at the start of my career was from Andy Morris, who was my editor at GQ, and he was just relentless about the importance of preparation for big interviews. He would make sure that if I was interviewing a celebrity, I'd, as close as possible, read everything that every interview they'd ever given. Uh, go back deep into the archive. Don't just read the things that they've said recently, uh, but go back as far as you can. Um, and Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with writer and comedian Natalie Haynes. We spoke to Natalie about her early years on the stand-up circuit, about making a case for the classics and about the importance of myths. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Well, Natalie, great to have you on Always Take Notes. Um, I wanted to start by asking about your origin of interest in the classics. I was reading the introduction to a new uh, book that you have out, and you were talking about watching Ray Harryhausen's Clash of the Titans as a child. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you uh, originally became interested in these subjects when you were when you were young. I mean, that probably is it. I know that when I came to write that introduction, um, it was during lockdown, and I thought, I've got to be able to, you've got to, I've read dozens of these kinds of books I've got to be able to say you know my parents always gave us loads of books and I was really you know transported as my parents did give us loads of books my grandmother worked in a bookshop um and and yet somehow when I came back to thinking about the things that um drew me to classics I'm afraid it was Ray Harryhausen every time however unreconstructed I might um find them now much as I do still like them um, it, it wasn't, you know, a puffin book of Greek myth, I'm afraid. It was um, watching that on the telly and then watching, you know, Hercules and things like that. So, yeah, shamingly, I'm afraid I wasn't brought into classics by um, uh, well-meaning versions of Greek myths for children. But perhaps that's a good thing, um, since I think they're all a bit, well, certainly the ones that were in popular usage when I was a child were all pretty um, specific in their focus, let's say. Um, and so, yeah, no, I was very lucky at school. I had a brilliant, uh, Latin was compulsory at my school, I think for a year and my Latin teacher was brilliant. Um, so yes, I was just very lucky. I got to study Latin from 11, I think, or 12, Greek from 14. It's pretty much impossible to do that in almost any school now. I took triple classics A-levels, which I think no school would let you do now. I took Latin, Greek and ancient history. Um, so yeah, no, it was quite a, an unlikely way of doing things, but, um, I have no regrets. I have a controversial opinion in that I think the music in Hercules is among the best of any any Disney film. Um, you wrote your. I just don't think that is controversial. I think it's the best <laughs> version of Greek myth on screen. I I will fight people over this, and I kickbox, so it's a serious threat when I say it. I I genuinely don't know why it's not one of the most celebrated Disney films. I think it's joyous. Is it you know completely faithful to? the versions of these myths that we find in, you know, pseudo Apollodorus's Bibliotheca. No, do you know why? It's a freaking film. It doesn't matter. It's a cartoon. I, I, I think it's fantastic. I'm genuinely nervous about the remake um, because I'm it's like, well, is it going to be? I was about to say, when when they remake it, you'll be uh, first. On, is it going to be 40 list? minutes longer? Because it's like, well, then I'm kind of here for that if it's extra songs. But what if they do it without songs like they've done with Milan? I'm not here for no songs. I'm here for all the songs and maybe bonus songs. 
I just don't know how to feel. I'm, go- I'm only gonna f- I'm gonna feel properly more and more tense as the release date arrives, and then I'm only gonna feel alright once I've seen it and it's okay. But I'm gonna have to between I considering I spend most of my life saying to people there's not an original version of a myth, there's not a sort of right version from which other versions deviate. There, blah 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 blah. That's really not how I feel about Disney. Okay, <laughs> it's like no, I think you're fine. This has to be Danny DeVito. <laughs> Probably need to work on that before the next one comes out. We can get into your dream casting maybe uh, in the in the after the show's finished. Um, but your um, your books obviously talk about uh, women in the classics. But you wrote your university dissertation on uh, women who kill children in Greek tragedy. Would you say from a child your interest has been in the sort of female side of, of these myths and these legends? Yes, I suppose it has. I mean, I didn't notice as an actual child that there weren't really any women in the Ray Harryhausen movies um, because I think generally it was quite easy not to notice those things in the 80s because there weren't very many women in very many films apart from, you know, specifically designed for women to cry to films, um, which was a sort of strange subset of movies for a while. Um, I guess it probably still is. I just maybe don't have to see them as often. Um and so I don't think I I don't think I noticed that women weren't weren't present particularly. And then as soon as I started reading them and realised just how incredible the roles for women were in, for example, Euripides or um, Aeschylus or whatever, then it was just like, oh, okay. Well, why would you ever tell this story any other way? Um, and so yeah, since I was a since I was thinking about these things kind of academically, I suppose critically, yes, I guess my interest has pretty well always been about women. But I would be lying if I told you that at you know the age of seven I was thinking about the monstering of Medusa in Clash of the Titans because I wasn't. I was thinking how very much I would like a clockwork owl as uh, well. I was thinking primarily. Can we talk a bit about um, you know you, you you were in Footlights as a student. You obviously have your your career in stand up. When you were working out what you what you wanted to do with your creativity and so forth. Did you have a sense that you wanted to be a, a writer or a performer? How did you feel the, the line between those two things? I don't feel they're separate for me. Okay. I write to perform and I perform when I write. Um, so I don't ever write anything that I haven't read aloud um, before. That's my creative process and my editing process. And I think, by the way, it's the single tip you can most easily um, adopt as a writer is reading your own work aloud, hearing how it sounds. Um, because generally, clunky sentences will, you're just, you just will stumble over them. And that's a, a sign, not necessarily that you're bad at reading aloud, but that maybe that sentence could do with a little work. Um, so yeah, no, it's only very occasionally. Um, I mean, actually this year is, is a bit of a, a different version, I suppose, because I've just um, done a very short play based on Ovid's Hypsipyle for German Street Theatre, which has been performed by, brilliantly, um, by Olivia Williams. But it's quite rare for me to write for somebody else to perform it. Generally, I'm the writing that I'm doing, I'll perform, and the performing that I'm doing is always my own words. I, I pretty much never do any other kind of performing. So, yeah, to me, they're very much one big thing. I, I think it's, it's really fair to suggest that all actors have to be able to... Um, read a text quite critically you know they've got to be able to find subtext and um and hunt for meaning and um and layers of meaning particularly in exactly the same way perhaps a different way but using the exact same techniques as any academic assessing that text um and i think writers who aren't novelists anyway who aren't acting at some level as they write their characters maybe won't have quite as much life to them i wondered also um, how writing for comedy has affected your other kinds of writing. Has it encouraged you to be sort of pithy and more economical with words? You mentioned sort of reading stuff aloud. I hope but so. Has it, you know, the, once you've crafted a great one-liner, is everything else sort of in straightforward <laughs> by comparison? In some ways, yes. I mean, I think probably comedians are only rivaled by poets and maybe people who write advertising copy for how much weight they put onto each word. Because you know, the people who write advertising copy are obviously paying for the words <laughs> one by one. Um, poets are looking for all the same things that comedians are looking for. They're looking for scansion, they're looking for emphasis, they're looking for meter and all of those things. Comedians might not be as um, formal about looking for those things, but that's still what you're looking for when you're working out why a joke doesn't land that way around. It's like, well, if you reorder it, can you? That's exactly the same sort of technique. So yeah, I think comedians are incredibly um, generally, I think they're incredibly thoughtful about 
the, the weight of each word in any given sentence. I've, I've argued this before and I continue to believe it, that if we had the half of Aristotle's poetics that deals with comedy in, as well as the half that deals with tragedy, we would take, as a society, we would take comedy much more seriously because we would have this um, text which analyzes it from this yeah, incredible thinker's perspective. And what happens instead, of course, is that we treat tragedy very seriously and then we behave as though comedy is, is sort of, it's just vaudeville, you know, it's just some guy with tap shoes on somewhere, you know, at the end of a pier. And it's like, well, by all means, be that condescending about an art form you don't understand and couldn't replicate. Um, but it's actually really difficult making people laugh. Um, it looks easy because that's the whole point of it. You have to make it look easy. And it looks easy whether you're doing physical comedy or verbal comedy, confessional, surreal, comedy of embarrassment, doesn't matter, long form comedy, short form comedy, broken comedy, they're all really difficult. <laughs> so yeah, once you've had to, um, once you've had to deal with gigging on stage on a Friday night to really drunk people for, as I did, the best part of 12 years, um, not very much scares you anymore about performance, truthfully. Um, it's really unusual for me to be nervous for a gig um, nowadays. I haven't been for years and yet. I quite miss it actually. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you you just it just hones your skills in a way. I mean, I guess it doesn't have to. You could just write, you know, develop a good twenty minutes and then just tour that round forever. Um, so I guess it doesn't have to help you hone those skills, but it certainly can help you hone those skills if you choose to let it. Can we talk about the the idea of the myth of of what it is and also why some stories have such endurance and such importance? across cultures and across time. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm not an expert on mythography, um, and particularly I'm not an expert on myths in multiple cultures at any given time. You know, I can help you with the odd um, story. Things like uh, detached heads um, we get from Mesopotamia with Humbaba. We get it in Greek myth with the Gorgons, Gorgonea, our little Gorgon heads. Um, and uh, somebody sent me today an example of a floating apotropaic protective head in Russian um, fairy stories. So, you know, there are these kind of motifs that appear and reappear. Um, but I think probably with Greek myth particularly, which is the only kind I claim any kind of expertise, um, I think it appeals to, it's, it's an intensely psychological type of myth. It both explains the world sort of as we know it or as we could have known it had we been alive in ancient Greece. You know, it's not an unreasonable thing if you live in a society in a place and at a time where it's riddled with earthquakes, um, as Greece and indeed Italy were and still are. Um, it's not unreasonable to think something must be causing that. And since you couldn't possibly know about tectonic plates, then Poseidon with his trident whacking it on the ground when he's angry isn't the worst idea anyone's ever had. It might not be right, but it's not stupid. It's just, you know, you haven't got enough information to make a more informed kind of decision. So it's pretty reasonable to have stories in place which explain to you why you know in winter things don't grow and the days are shorter it's because Demeter is grieving for her missing daughter for Persephone um, and at the same time you know the sort of next layer of Greek myth I think the things that that moves it up a gear and gives it a particular potency in our lives today still is that it has this sort of archetypal stories which seem to tell us who we are rather than just what the world is and so I guess a good example would be the story of Oedipus. You know, most of us, I'm reasonably confident in saying, um, don't know what it's like to kill our fathers and marry our mothers. But maybe all of us have experienced that sense of tension between what we want to do with our lives and what our parents want. You know, obviously, that sense of, you know, the thing that Freud saw in that myth was the idea of, uh, I mean, obviously a young man, because A, the myth is about a young man, um, and B, Freud pretty much can't theorise about anything but men, because as soon as women get involved, he kind of panics and goes, I don't know what they want, ah, and runs away. Um, which is how magnificently he manages to see the story of Medusa as being about male anxiety of castration. Dude, did you see who got decapitated? Not the guy, I literally, anyway. Um, but you can see how with Oedipus, he's trying to find a way of showing why small boys you know, feel antagonistic towards their dads and affectionate towards their mothers, that eventually they're hoping to, at a psychological level, overthrow their fathers and marry their mothers. And so I think there is something to be said for those kinds of, of pressures that the, the psychological truths, perhaps, that underpin these myths, the exact same things that make the myths rise up in the first place, um, be told by multiple storytellers across the whole Greek world over um generations of storytellers all at the same time which is why so many of these myths are contradictory um those are the same 
reasons that keep us feeling like they're relevant to us today. The, the story of Medea is a perfect illustration. A couple who, in their extremely messy divorce, weaponized their children against one another. We've all seen that. We may, I very much hope, not have seen a version which ends so literally, horrifically, in which Medea's children are killed either by her in Euripides' version or by people of Corinth in some earlier versions, or um, there are a few different versions of the story. Uh, Hera, the goddess Hera in some versions. Um, but most of us still know people who've weaponized their children as a as an act of aggression in a in a breakup. Um, however difficult it is for us to acknowledge that. Um, it, there's a reason why that play keeps being performed. It's because it feels um, terrifyingly contemporary, I think. Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned it because um, what has sprung to mind, you know, reading about your work and and um, you know, and thinking about this subject is um, Simon Stone did a a production of Medea recently where he sort of made her much more sympathetic, much more sympathetic. She's victimized and, and psychologically manipulated. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the Dutch version at the Barbican and reviewed it for The Guardian, I think. And I didn't see the version in New York, the English language version, which I would really like to have seen because it was so good in Dutch. That's probably the the joint best Medea I've seen. And I must have seen 30 um, in my whole life. And the other joint best one, by the way, was Diana Rigg when I was a teenager. So, you know, they were... They were, it was a big set of Greek shoes to fill. But yeah, I thought it was incredible. And I was all set to be really suspicious of it as well because it opens with her being allowed out of a, a asylum, you know, where she's been locked up for her own and other people's safety for a year. And I was all ready to go, in Euripides, she is not mad. Meh, meh, meh. This makes me really cross. It does make me really cross. Um, I understand why people do it, but I think it um, reduces the impact. of. I completely get why directors and adapters today think an audience won't understand that a sane woman could kill her children and not regret it. Um, but that is what's in Euripides. So by all means, change it if you want. It's That's how myth works. But it always seems to me a pity. It almost always happens. And I think it's a mistake. Um, and, uh, and so I was all ready to be kind of grumpy about it. And my God, it was just a masterpiece. And the the uh, did you see this at the Barbican that with that huge white? I mean, that stage has broken many a show before it because it is way too big for virtually any production you put in there. And Greek tragedy hasn't always done well in that space. I saw Antigone there a few years ago and it was just, you know, it was like watching um, little puppets in a in a little you know, cardboard box theatre. It's like everyone is too small for the size of this stage. There's not a big enough cast in a Greek play. Um, and then they used film really well, which again can be really cliched. And this incredible bright white box. And as as the play goes on and we realise that there's a sort of grimy mass in the middle of the stage and it's as it becomes clear over the next scene, two scenes maybe, it's a pile of ash because she's burned the house down. I just, I, I was absolutely, I was kind of giddy with excitement when I came out. I was like, that is just the best production of Padera I've seen for probably 25 years. Um, so yeah, no, I thought it was remarkable, just remarkable. And based uh, as these things often and tragically are on a real case in the United States in the 90s, I think, or perhaps the 80s. Um, so yes, incredibly harrowing. But I think it's a really interesting thing that, that he chose to do with Medea, because like I say, I am the most um, antagonistic to the idea of make her mad, she must be mad. And then it was just brilliant. It really was very clever. Natalie, I was wondering if you could make the case for classics. I know this is a sort of big question, but in, in the 21st century, and I'm interested in particular in how important you think it is to know like the languages themselves. Obviously, you said that you started studying them earlier. And I'll kind of put my cards on the table here. And I, I did five years of extracurricular Latin as a child, which was part of a sort of weird Cambridge thing because my parents thought that I was not being stretched. It was all tied up with the anxiety about where I was at school and so forth. So I ended up doing an additional GCSE in it alongside everything else I did. And I think in retrospect, like I'm, so they had a sort of succession of starving PhD students who would be brought around one evening a week to, to instruct me. And I think in retrospect, I'm very glad I was taught um, grammar formally. I found that, I found that very useful. It's so helpful, isn't but, it? If, especially if you write. Yeah, I think, I think that was very helpful. Um, and it was, it was sort of weird socially I suppose because it meant that by the time I got to secondary school I was at stage 38 of the Cambridge Latin course and knew that Caecilius was going to die and all this sort of stuff but I think what, what I I like that there was suspense for you up to that point <laughs> it's like they lived in Pompeii hey, he might he might he might have <laughs> he might have survived <laughs> 
I mean, statistically, you can't have liked his chances. Come on, he wasn't. He wasn't in Herculaneum. It would have been. It would have been worse <laughs> if he was there. But but I suppose on the on the other side of the ledger, I would say that you know the languages that I have really cherished as an adult are German and are French because I have spoken. I can speak them, and I have. They have a huge literary hinterland, and they've really provided a sort of transformational experience of my lived life as an adult. I suppose what we, what if you were to make the defence of of these these non-spoken languages, how would you how would you do that? Well, I guess. Um... It's a sort of set of questions, isn't it, really? The first is that I think everyone should have the opportunity to learn classics. I don't demand that everyone has to sit there and go, um, uh, mensa, 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 that's all right. I don't I don't demand it. I think it's fan- a fantastic thing to be able to learn another language. Um, and I think it's a tragedy that we now don't expect students to learn at least one other language. It's, it's you know, become a, a much rarer thing to learn. I had to do French and Latin and then either Greek or German, clearly in my case, Greek, which worked really well until I was gigging in Berlin as a comedian and then not quite so well. Um, but it was just a brief hiatus in a career where generally Greek has served me quite well. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd got three languages plus my first language by the time I uh, started my A-levels. And that seems to me a lot, um, maybe more than everyone needs. Um, I obviously like them more than most, I guess. Um, but it seems to me awful not to get the chance to learn any other language, not least because it's only by the act of learning languages that we can see that other societies really aren't like ours, kind of from the inside out. It's only when you try to form a sentence in a language which has concepts that ours doesn't or doesn't have concepts that ours does, that's the moment where you where you realise perhaps most fully that not everyone is like you, you know, and that's a huge boon to give to people who want to be writers my god but also just to give to us as human beings that's basically empathy distilled is wait what's it like to not be me that's a really useful skill to acquire and i think it's as good a way learning another language is as good a way of of acquiring that as any um i would like everyone to have the opportunity to learn classics i would love everyone to have the opportunity to learn latin and greek at every school in the country but i do understand that the curriculum is already absolutely packed and so that's not a particularly realistic wish so given that that's the case um i think classical civilization where you learn classics in translation basically is a fantastic way of giving classics to people who whose schools otherwise just can't make the space for it which isn't to say there aren't state schools doing amazing things i um make an annual although this year i probably won't be able to i think um visit to a school in walthamstow where um the students are learning Latin in their lunch times, and their teachers are modern language teachers or English teachers or history teachers who've taught themselves Latin, you know, like a few weeks ahead of the kids the first year they did it in order to be able to teach because they thought, well, why why should these kids not have the same opportunities as kids at a private school? Um, and then when they decided that these kids were doing really well, which they are um, at Latin, they decided they would teach themselves Greek. They all sat the same GCSE. I, it, when there are teachers going through that kind of effort to try and give the, these opportunities to children um it, it just seems to me extraordinary that anyone would say anything but how fantastic how can i help um so i guess i love the idea that that students will get to study latin and greek at school but i understand that realistically it might be university where they get to to make that extra step if and that's only if we give them classes at schools which you know is on is on the increase so that's terrific news for classics and for classicists. Um, I guess the the flip side of it, though, is that we're now asking students to shell out £9,000 a year in fees alone to study a subject that they maybe don't know if they'll like or not. You know, how do you say to somebody, hey, come and study classics? No, I know you haven't done Latin and Greek yet. In fact, you might not have had the opportunity to do any languages at your school. But hey, come and give it a go. Wait, just give me this huge check. Um, I, it doesn't seem to me like a very fair way of um, of trying to persuade students to work out what the best thing is for them, the thing that they would most most enjoy. But I guess the alternative is that we allow what was sort of already happening before the rise of, of Classiv, which is that an awful lot of, of classics was being taught only in private schools and only 7% of students in the UK go to a fee-paying school and I have a problem with our collective culture and history being the preserve of people whose parents can afford to pay for it. Um, It's all our history. These stories belong to all of us. And it's not okay to say, if you haven't got, I don't know, £15,000 a year in school fees, you're somehow not good enough for classics. I dispute that. I get an awful lot of 
emails from people and you know in the days when we could perform live we used to get lots of people after gigs um saying that they had failed the 11 plus or you know variations on that that theme they've been streamed out of latin because latin was for clever children and they had been found wanting in some way um latin is not actually a very difficult language to learn greek is difficult latin not very difficult plus you never have to speak it so the terrible anxiety that besets english people when faced with having to actually say what they would like in a restaurant in france or in you know germany or whatever never comes up no one's ever going to make you visit ancient rome and then think of something polite to say about customs it's all going to be fine um but i i don't i guess i i kind of think what an what an incredible thing that we get to learn languages but the classics languages they're they're nice ones to do and people who who get taken out of the system who get told that they're not good enough for latin that scar has sometimes stayed with them for their whole lives i've had people mailing me who are retired who were thrown out of latin class at the age of 11 or 12 it's like that classics doesn't think it's too good for you this classics is a, this is, is a theme fine. of um your your one of your novels amber fury about the sort of accessibility of the of the classics at a um I don't know, I guess an underprivileged school, a school for for kids that have been thrown out of, of other institutions. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to write that novel? Yeah, I I wrote that novel thinking I would manage to disprove my own beliefs. I think ardently, and perhaps more now than then. I can't remember when number came out. Fourteen, maybe, maybe fourteen. Um, I think everyone's lives are better with classics in them. They just are because. Then you have classics. How brilliant. Um, and it'll wait for you. You can go in any way you like. It doesn't matter if it's Disney Hercules or, you know, verb tables. It's fine. It'll just wait. Don't worry. Um, and then I thought how interesting it would be to try and write a, a story which refutes that and say, OK, well, here's this sort of idealistic young woman who's suffered this extraordinary um, devastation in her life. But essentially, her ideals have remained intact, even though her emotions are in tatters. Um, and so she goes into this very difficult um, setting of a pupil referral unit. So, as you say, students who've been thrown out of other schools generally for things which are pretty, pretty shoddy behaviour, let's say, euphemistically, uh, certainly in the case of my characters, euphemistically. Um, and she would try to reach them with these narratives um, because I've always thought that Greek tragedy and teenagers are the perfect mix. And maybe that's because I was a teenager when I first found Greek tragedy. But the kind of extremism that we see in characters and tragedy is exactly... I, I was 16, maybe 17, when I read Euripides' Medea for the first time. And I didn't think she was wrong. I should tell you, if you're looking in the background, for the sign of, yeah, I don't have children, so it's fine. But... You know, the ex her extreme response where she says, you know, no, people don't get to laugh at me. If I have to do this horrific thing, destroy everything I care about in order to injure the person who's injured me, then that's what I'll do. And I thought, yeah, fair enough. Um, now, I I'm prepared to acknowledge that children might be the same thing as people. <laughs> but at 16, I was like, yep, yeah, nope, that seems fine to me. Yes, okay. And so I think maybe... I wanted with Amber to sort of capture that sense that I had when I was a much better, I should say, behaved, um, at least, you know, ostensibly better behaved person than the characters in that book and say, OK, well, this is the I, I was so sure when it went out to find a publisher because I wrote it on spec um, that people would say, well, why Greek tragedies and teenagers? I was right there, you know, with my defense. And then no one ever asked. They all just went, oh, yeah, no, they're just like that. I was like, no, <laughs> just like that. I'm just it's like a normal quality, a positive quality taken to a extreme degree makes you a, a you know extremist character in tragedy and I thought well that that's exactly to me what it felt like being in a hormonal haze I think um and so I set out to write Amber saying that you know maybe a little classics could be a bad thing because it doesn't work out magnificently for everyone in that novel um and then I think by the time you get to the end um by the time you get that uh I don't want to spoil the book because um, it's certainly my least read book, so I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't read it yet. But by the time you get to the end, I think I absolutely managed to refute what I was trying to prove. I think in the end, it turns out that classics is a sort of salvation for the person who um, has received it. And so, yeah, I, I failed at every stage. But that's good because it gave me 
you know, the sense that perhaps novels didn't need a moral message behind them. I could just write the story as it was, which is what ended up happening. Could you tell us a bit about your career as a stand-up, both how you got into it, the kind of... I blanked it all out, love. It was so harrowing. <laughs> I just I just totally blanked it out. Well, I was just, just going to say, both the kind of, the mechanics of it, how you went about making your way in that world, and then the act of writing for stand-up, you know, what, what your your process is to use a, a slightly charged word how for, yeah maybe the, the first bit is like how did you how did you make your way off to university into that uh the hard way like you had to in the 90s um because at the time i'm so old but at the time the circuit was a very um let's say robust place to be a young woman um and there were virtually i think women were about 10 percent of the comedy circuit when i started out in comedy and they were about 10 percent when i left you know, and the whole time, and I was in it for the best part of, well, over a decade, about 12 years, um, people would keep saying, oh, yeah, th- yeah they, we really want more women at this gig. We really, And then they just didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the rules were basically one woman and three men on a bill at any given time. You never have two women on the same bill unless it was International Women's Day, and then sometimes you had two. And so we never got to hang out together, me and Lucy Porter, me and Joe Caulfield, me and Sarah Kendall, unless, you know... We were in Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival where we were all in the same city for the same kind of three and a half, four weeks. Um, it's really easy to make other students laugh. And then when you get onto the circuit and you start gigging, you know, in real places <laughs> with real people, then you suddenly realise you've got to actually find a way of of making your worldview accessible to other people. It's not enough to just say, you know, that thing we all know. You have to say, here's this thing that I know that's like this thing that you might know. And then you know, find those ways of, of connecting. What kind of place? What kind of places are they? On is are they, presumably there are like different layers of the circuit and things like that. I mean, what... I have no idea now. I've been off the circuit since oh, for fifteen. But years, when, when you when you were so, starting out, where, what were these? When places? I was doing it, it was everything. It was student unions. Um, it was pubs. It was working men's clubs. It was nightclubs. So yeah, I gigged. I gigged everywhere. You know, and now I think you know, would I would I recommend that? Yeah, I was 23, I think, when I sort of started. I would just be cheerily sort of driving up a motorway to go to a city I'd never been to in days before SatNav, incidentally. You know, the gig would send you like, this makes me sound literally 200 years old, but it is still true. They would send you like a a slightly blurry photocopy of a page of the local A to Z. And sometimes they might put a little cross where the gig was and a highlighter pen. And that's all you'd have. And you'd just be driving up there. Think, and, you know, now I think I don't quite know how I didn't get murdered. Um, you know, not metaphorically, literally. I just sort of randomly stopped my car somewhere, get out, ask a man who was walking a dog for directions. to like clearly had no idea where I was or anything. I mean, you know, I guess um, Cynthia Heimel, the American humorist, once said that God protects drunks and feisty women. I think it must have been true in my case. Not that I was drunk because I was always driving. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was quite a it was quite a brutal way to kind of get your spurs, I guess. But then the the plus side is that now when I do gigs, you know, they're for audiences at a book festival or for my radio show or whatever. That I don't have scary audiences now. <laughs> I can play anywhere in the world. And I'm like, yeah, great. Hi, thanks. It, it's always so easy and so nice. So, yeah, that's the, the plus side of having done stand-up is that you're, you're not, there's no version of live performance now which fills me with fear ever. You've written before about um, sort of the cost problem, partly that you have to be able to sort of do gigs for no money for years, but also that the Edinburgh Festival is where you really cut your teeth. And when you were sort of going as a student... Oh, it's expensive now. Yeah, it cost you like... Yeah, it's become £200 and now it's thousands and thousands of pounds. Do you think that's sort of affecting... I mean, it's obviously affecting the sort of kind of people that can do comedy because it's people who can afford to go. of course. It's becoming like every other bit of arts in the media, which is that it favours people who have parents who can subsidise them through their 20s or later. Um... You know, I was, I was so lucky. You know, I worked in blockbuster video videos. Um, Rachel, uh, they were like, they were like DVDs. Do you remember DVDs? They were like streaming, but you had a little plastic box, and in the plastic box. Anyway, I worked in blockbuster video by day, um, and then by night I would go to gigs, and that was a perfectly sustainable existence. I had, you know, it wasn't particularly fun or luxurious. I had a single room in a shared flat, which I was never in because I was always either at Blockbuster or out on the road trying to get to or from a gig. 
and yeah, it used to cost for about two years, which was roughly what it took to go from earning absolutely nothing as a stand up doing your first open spot unpaid gig for five minutes. Um, you could go, it took about two years to go from that. If you really went for it to go from that, to be able to earn not a great living, but enough of a living to be able to not have a day job. Um, so, so long as your day job was basically the minimum wage working in a shop, obviously. In fact, it was before the minimum wage. That's how old I am. It was just before the minimum wage when I worked at Blockbuster. Um, so I used to get £3.30 an hour, which if that sounds like not very much money, uh, let me give you some context. I used to sell tubs of haagen that cost £3.99. And every single time I sold one, I would think this is worth more than an hour of my life. <laughs> it was really quite a distressing fact to have to face up to. So... You know, good news is I didn't ever have to do that again. And even if I fall massively from grace and everything falls apart, I can't go back to it. Blockbuster video no longer exists. It's all fine. So, yeah, it was a really it was a really tough way to live for a couple of years. Um, but again, I, I don't have any regrets. You know, I, I never really mind working hard. I work harder now. Probably I do more hours now um, because I'm terrible at making a distinction between work and fun. Um, which makes me sound a little dull, and that is completely fair. Um, but I don't know. I, I it was so exciting. I was so ambitious, and you know, now I'm I seem so kind of relatively calm, and I am quite calm because you know I got to to do lots of the things that I wanted to do. The week we were recording this, my first play opened on the West End. That's that's been quite a good week for me, even if it was digitally broadcast because we couldn't, you know, do it in real. But still, that's quite a nice achievement. So now I'm relatively calm. But at 23, I was basically just a pulsing ball of ambition and rage. So good that we came to each other now <laughs> when I'm better company and less grumpy. But yeah, then I was just always like the entire time. I was so determined. And yeah, I guess I, I still think I'm quite an ambitious person, but certainly that absolute monomania that propelled me through my 20s um now seems to me to have been slightly unusual and with a like a 20 minute stand-up slot both and forgive me if this is a naive question but it's not really a world that i know that well um with that both for yourself and for for comedians in general how much of that will be kind of worked out exactly to the word beforehand and how much of it do you modulate depending on the audience depending on how it's landing that kind of thing here's the thing for me at the time, it was always worked out pretty much to the syllable, let alone to the word. Every single beat was kind of rehearsed in my mind. It was the same at every gig. You know, I was always so nervous. I was so For five years, basically, I felt sick all the time, fear. Um, and so I was always really kind of, I always spoke really fast. I always do speak really fast. I've never managed to break that habit. Um, but then to be fair, this is how fast I talk in normal life. I just don't have the time, you know, that I've got the, all those tubs of haagen to earn back. I've really got to, you know, make the effort. Um, but as I've become a kind of post-comedian comedian, my Radio 4 producer calls me a recovering comedian, which I think is a really good description because I still do what looks a lot like stand-up, you know, uh, for the radio series and for um book festivals and you know I do sometimes talks at schools and universities and they're all pretty similar they're me doing what looks a lot like stand-up but it's so easy compared with stand-up because now basically I can just go on stage and dick around you know people are so they aren't there because they're expecting me to make them laugh every 15 seconds they're there because they like my books or they like the radio show or they want to learn something about classics that is not a tough audience it's a delight so now I'm all kind of improvising doesn't matter let's see what happens but as a stand-up and everybody always thinks I hone those skills doing stand-up. And I must have, but only by watching other people have the confidence to do it. Because I definitely didn't until I had left stand-up, which was not, I'm prepared to concede, absolute perfect timing, ironically, given that I was a comedian. Could we talk about your segue then into um, writing for newspapers? Because you had a column at The Times and you wrote for The Independent and The New Humanist. Um, how did that come about? Uh, I did a TV show where I was there because I was funny and it was a topical program. And um, Danny Finkelstein of the Times uh, was there. Well, he's, I think he's Lord Finkelstein now, but at the time he was Danny Finkelstein. He was also on to talk about the news. Um, and he was the editor of the op-ed pages. Um, and Alan Corrin, Rachel, Alan Corrin is like Victoria Corrin's dad. Do you remember Victoria Corrin from Only Get and So On and So On? But Alan Corrin was not well um, and was in fact, as it turned out, dying. Um, and they asked me if I would write his column until he was, you know, able to come back to work. Um, 
And I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I, he just thought I was funny sitting next to him on a sofa talking about topical things. And he was like, hey, do you want to try writing this column this week? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Because generally, and this is the only piece of actual advice I have to offer, um, is when anyone says, do you want to do this? Always just say yes. Unless it's like heart surgery or something, then don't. But generally, just say yes. Because, you know, you, the, how else are you going to learn except by doing? The, the people you think know what they're doing also don't know what they're doing. So this is the thing just give it just go yeah yeah i'll give it a try and i mailed someone i had been at uh, i'd done a couple of gigs with at college lucy mangan um at the guardian said i don't know how to write an article for a newspaper don't you write for the guardian what do i do she said say something clever at the beginning come back to it with a call back at the end and then just fill it in the middle <laughs> great thank you <laughs> carried on and so yeah no i was pretty lucky there i mean i was quite funny i suppose you know i wrote quite good jokes because i'd had to hone them in front of an audience so um yeah, and, and I had a really lovely time writing op-ed for about, I don't know, five years or so. Um, and then I switched to the independent because I thought this would be more fun if I earned less money for doing the same job. Um, and uh, and obviously newspapers were sort of financially were falling apart through that time. I, I kind of had a really good go at the very end of it where you could earn sensible money for writing a column rather than silly money for writing a column. Um and then, you know, the, the market was sort of falling out and there were so many journalists and, and opinion writers and so on had been made redundant from various newspapers that there were too many people fighting for the same columns. And I thought, you know what, I don't really need to be doing this. I don't enjoy it enough to make it. You know, there are people here who would quite rightly step over their own grandparents in order to get this gig because they need to pay a bill and I could just go out on stage. So I, I, so I still write. I'm, I say this as though I'm not currently writing a piece to a deadline for this afternoon, but... Anyway, let's just, I, I don't normally do that anymore, but I, I do like doing it when I get to. Um, but yeah, there are just fewer fewer spaces available. So, Kind of following on from what you were saying there, it's a rule of the podcast that we ask everyone about money and about how it interfaces with their writing lives. So you were saying that, you know, it took you a couple of years of, of blockbuster time to, to be... Um, making your way with stand-up with it with your life now how and be it say as much or as little as you're comf comfortable with with this but how is your income split between the different forms of work that you do well this year you'll be surprised to hear that performing hasn't gone that well <laughs> financially speaking so yeah like every other performer i know in 48 hours in march i lost every gig in my diary pretty well for that year um and so in yes in 48 hours in march i lost a third of my income um, and that was quite a gloomy day. I'm not going to lie to you. I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm not particularly kind of spendthrifty kind of person, as um, you'll know if you've seen any of my videos online. Basically, my biggest expense is children's T-shirts from Uniqlo, and they're not very expensive. Um, and uh, the bonus, Simon, although you wouldn't know this, of being quite flat-chested, it's fine. It's, I can just wear a child's T-shirt. Um, they don't even have that on them. It's a huge I mean, result. Yeah, you, you assume, you assume I, I would not know this. I think that's I'm a, just telling a, you so you've got it. Well, just in case you need it for future conversations. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it was all, it was a bit bleak. And I was very conscious of the fact that my friends who are proper performers, you know, stand-ups, musicians, actors, etc., had lost everything. You know, I'd still got a writing income at least. Um, and then about two weeks later maybe three weeks later, I had the email which told me that a thousand ships were shortlisted for the women's prize. And I couldn't tell anyone for another three weeks because it wasn't announced until the end of April. Um, so I just had to kind of sit there. And as, as that was kept secret, it meant that even my agent couldn't tell the publishers in America who were looking at the manuscript. And, and then, yeah, the shortlisting was announced and the book sold in the US pretty much at the same time. And that really dulled the pain okay. <laughs> of losing a third of my income. It was like, <laughs> okay. Um, and because Ships was shortlisted, then I sold two more books to Pan Macmillan, who are my publishers here, Medusa, which is the next novel, and Medea, which will be the novel after that. Um, so I was, I think we can safely say, enormously lucky by anyone's standards this year. Um, enormously lucky by my standards. And I tend to think of myself as quite a lucky person most of the time. Um, it was just a huge, you know, to lose so much, just in a sort of, you know, a few heartbeats, it felt like. And then to have this sudden, absolutely inexplicable boon descend on me. Yeah, it felt quite rollercoastery. And of course, it was during lock proper hardcore lockdown. So I couldn't 
you know, I celebrated getting onto the Women's Prize shortlist by going for a walk <laughs> on my own. I'm like, wow, I really thought this would be more woo, <laughs> clinking of glasses. Like, no, okay, this is still nice. And then it was like a lovely sort of secret present that I had. So I had no regrets about that either. But yeah, it wasn't quite the way I sort of thought it would be. But I'm absolutely delighted that you always talk to people about money because I think it's one of the great unspoken things about this business. And when I go and talk in schools about, you know, whether what you want to be when you grow up, um, generally my advice is don't be me. And then um, I've got more nuanced suggestions after that. Um, but I always tell kids that they should think about money because you should think about money. You know, you, how else are you going to pay your bills? One day you might want a home of your own. One day you might want to marry and have children. One day you might want to, you know, drop all this and go sailing around the world. And for that, you will need revenue. And it's not good enough to just the narrative that always prevails, I think, in arts professions is, you know, if you want it enough, everything will just sort of work out. And there's this what I call the winner's narrative where you get an interview with an actor usually or a musician and it's like they were down to their their last possible minute. They've got nothing left. They were just about to give it all up and go and get a job in you know, any noun. And then their agent called and they went to this one last audition and then they just found themselves with the lead in a Hollywood film. You go, right, I call bullshit. Here's the thing. If you have an agent that is getting you in for a lead role in a film, then you're already doing incredibly well because most actors don't have that. Just FYI. They're not doing open a chorus line style castings for every role. You know, your best case scenario is going to be being a day player on something. So if you're getting seen for those big roles, already you can be quiet. Um, and then, you know, this this notion that if you, if you pursue something else as like a, a plan B, that'll be a sign somehow to you, the universe, other people in the business that you don't want it enough. And therefore, no, stop talking right now. That will be a sign that you are thinking of what it might be like to get to 35 and realize that you don't want to live off 11,000 pounds a year for the rest of your life. It drives me absolutely mad. So please, everyone, think about money. Have a plan B that you don't hate. Don't say, oh, I'm determined to be an opera singer. And if that doesn't work out, I'll just sweep streets. Unless you actually want to sweep streets, Find something else that you might not hate doing. I, I say this all the time. I sound like everyone's most grumpy maiden aunt and I can't help that. It's important. What was it for you? My plan B, I would have taught. I did teach briefly um, between Blockbuster and earning a full-time living. Um, so yeah, I taught Latin and, and Greek. Um, obviously, not qualified to teach anything else. Uh, not even really qualified to teach those, frankly. Um, so... Yeah, I would have. I would. Have, my, both my parents were teachers, um, so yeah, I would have probably stayed into. I like. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I like the idea of running away and joining the circus, but I already did that. Became a comedian, ran away, joined the library. So yeah, I thought I. I would probably have been a teacher. I think, but I don't think I'd have done very well. With, I'm not very good at managementy type things, so I don't think I'd have made it. You know, to the top of a, a greasy pole because I'm too impatient and I can't be trusted to turn up to work wearing something. You know, that someone's iron. Can we talk a bit about um, writing books? I read an article that you wrote about the similarities between writing and running, and it resonated with me as someone who finds both. Oh, I agree with this. <laughs> Could you sort of rehash that um, for our listeners? You'll definitely remember it better than me because I have the most spectacular um, erase and reset kind of brain. And this is entirely earned, I might add, from doing stand up because it's such a traumatic experience learning to do stand up that you basically can only survive it if you don't remember any of it. So I can go to virtually any city or town or in some cases even village in this country and I can be aware as I walk past a building of a sort of visceral sense memory. And then I realise I must have gigged there, but I've no idea if something good or bad happened, just something and then we should never speak of it again. And so I do that with writing, I do it with everything. I can't remember. And every now and then I come really unstuck and I have to deliver a seminar to high-end students at you know, Stanford or something on a book I wrote four years ago and I can't remember what's in it. <laughs> so, and they're like so the moment with that and you go ah yes let me just refresh my memory I've got no idea it was ages ago um so well i can i can i can read you a choice quote if you'd like <laughs> i'll just believe you and let's hope it's true i think i didn't really um i like the idea about running that what you put in and what you get out are related which is generally not true in my creative life um generally you can put a ton of work into you know, pitching something and, and you get nowhere. No one's interested in it and it's intensely frustrating. And one of the reasons I took up running was because I wanted the correlation between effort and achievement is I need one bit of my life where the thing that I try to do and the thing that I achieve are linked because generally that's not how it goes. But I think the, the kind of long form of running long distance and writing 
anything longer than an essay, really. Um, there's a, a really intimate connection to me between those two things, because often when you're struggling with a run, for example, uh, if you are running after having been ill, if you're just starting out doing catch to 5k or something like that, in which case, welcome to running. It's great. Um, come and be our friend. Uh, we may not smile. It depends where in the country you are, but we welcome you anyway. Um, but I used to at least always be kind of pacing myself, ha, literally and metaphorically, to the next sort of measurable object. It's like, well, OK, I don't think I can run 5k because I couldn't, um, but I can run probably to that next bench. And then when you get there, you're like, well, I could probably run to that lamppost. And then when you get there, you're like, well, I could probably make it to that tree. And you can do a whole run that way. And you can, in fact, get to 5K, perhaps. Um, certainly, eventually you can, merely by bribing yourself with the next you know, thing, the next thing, the next thing. And that's honestly, basically how I write a book, which will be you know, 90, 100,000 words long, is I, I don't ever have an anxiety when I look at a blank page and think, well, how am I going to start a novel which is going to be so huge how am I going to hold this whole world up in my head for all that time how am I going to do all of that I think I don't need to do that I just need to get to the end of this bit and then the end of that bit and then the end of the next bit and to me those things are really reassuring the, the kind of downside of it is something I didn't realize until I judged the Booker Prize um, in 2013 I think um, is that I had always I love dividing things and I'm a very mathematical person on the quiet um uh, or at least a very arithmetic person, I suppose I should say, on the quiet. So I love to divide things, multiply them, add them. I'm doing it all the time, pretty much counting, all, always. Um, and so I had always felt like when you had any task, you basically just needed to get to a certain point and then say, right, I've done a quarter, I've done a third. Okay, I've done two fifths. Okay, I've done half. Okay, now I've done three fifths, two thirds, three quarters, four fifths. Okay, and so on. And I'm doing that all the time. And so I'd always felt like the more you've done, the, the better you'll feel because you've done more of it and you can count it. And then I read 151 novels in 204 days for the booker. And I realized when I got to book 100 that actually it's much worse. <laughs> you kind of go, yeah, I've, I, I've read 100 books and I don't know how many at that point are still going to come in, but I've read 100. And you think, yeah, and I'm exhausted. You know what? I've read 100 books. <laughs> I couldn't be more tired. And that for me is what running a long, like running a half marathon is like. And I hope I'll get to run a marathon when they're back up and, and ha, running again. But uh, my touring schedule hasn't allowed it for the last five, six years. Um, so uh, who knows when we'll get to. I should have taken my opportunity when I had the chance. I didn't have the chance. I was always on tour. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that sense where you get to a certain distance and you go, but you've already done 10 miles. How hard can the ne next 3.1 be? You go, they'll be really hard. You know what? I've already done 10. What the hell's wrong with you, brain? Stop being so perky. How is this helping anyone? But yeah, ultimately, I'm quite a perky runner and quite a perky writer. I like doing it. So even when it's a bit of a struggle. And kind of, again, it sort of follows very interestingly from what you said there another perennial question that we have with novelists and fiction writers is whether they're a, a plotter or a plunger so the i mean the terms are, are very plotter. but whether yeah whether everything is kind of organized beforehand or you just go in and, I, and and particularly with you if you're rewriting a a classical story how does that you know t tell us about that plotting or plunging for you yeah when i wrote amber this is the most plotty i have ever been um i had index cards in different colours, depending on whether the um, narrative was going to be in Alex's voice, the protagonist, or in the diary, which is um, written by one of the other characters, but I won't say who, in case you want to read it, I don't want to spoil it. Um, and uh, there was, so there was a, a and Alex's timeline had, uh, had a, was split. So there was Alex's present tense, um, there was Alex's past tense, which was sort of about a year ago. And then there was a diary, which obviously is a past tense narrative, but really urgent past tense, because you're just telling people what happened that day. Um, and I had all the information that I needed to get across written on these three different color-coded sets of index cards. And I had them all laid out on my floor. And I was trying to work out, you know, which order they would have to be in and how I would alternate from one to the other so that it would all work. And I remember looking at it at one point and thinking, the, oh, if I put string between these, this would be the notice board of a serial killer in any given episode of CSI. And it was a sort of terrible realize. I was like, yeah, okay. And I needed it to get me through that first book for absolute sure. Um, because, because they're difficult. You know, books are really long. <laughs> you have to spend a bit of time working them out. Um, and then when I wrote Jocasta, um, 
the, again, the story was split onto two timelines. And so that was much easier because there was sort of, you know, there was a chunk of, of time between them, um, uh, about 15 years. So that made it a lot simpler. Um, and then with ships, you know, ships was just a monster because obviously it changed voice every single chapter. Um, and there were some recurring voices, Penelope, Calliope and the Trojan women. Um, but there were lots of just one-offs, you know, women who just appeared, had a chapter and then fucked off. Um, and I was so, and I, I've somewhere, I must still have the page that I wrote for Pam Macmillan because I sold ships on the, along with Jocasta and I'd already written Jocasta. Um, and they said, can you give us a page on what you want to do next? And I wrote a page saying, I'm going to tell the story of the whole Trojan War, but I'm only going to do it from the perspectives of the women. It'll change voice each chapter and there'll be a backwards timeline telling the causation of the war and a consequences timeline running forwards. Okay. And they, in absolute fairness to them, went, yes, that's completely fine. And not what are you thinking? You are out of your mind. And so Ships was a very much more complicated narrative, but I felt like I'd been waiting my whole life to write it. So actually I did a lot less of the kind of formal planning but it was still loads because it's like well you know there are trojans and greeks and greeks from different houses and some of these are still in the third person and some are in the first and i'm going to need to be able to alternate between those but as it becoming repetitive and so it was still it was enormously complicated it was like being an actual crazy person for quite a long time and when my friend philippa perry the psychotherapist read ships um she mailed me and said i can't believe you've been looking after all these women for all this time and it was it was that thing where you know somebody really says the right thing and you're like, oh yeah, that's been exactly what it's been like. It's just oh yeah, okay, yeah. It's like okay, maybe I could put them all down now. <laughs> it would be all right as well. So yeah, I'm just starting the next one and just trying to um, not beat myself up for the fact that I'm not sitting here with piles of index cards at the moment. I'm, I may yet get to that. The the narrative seems a bit easier this time, but maybe that's just because I've done this more times before. Um, we're coming to the end of our time, which has sort of flown by. But I wondered if we could sort of circle back to the beginning and talk about how in your next books you're going to sort of take on these stories. I mean, Medea in particular, how are you thinking that you're going you to... you have to wait. I can't think about her yet. I've got the juices <laughs> to do first. I have to do... I'm such a serial brain. I have to do them one after the other. So, yeah, no, I've just... I'm still, I'm still working it out. I'm still, yeah... I'm still very much working it out. I thought I knew exactly what I was going to do with Medusa. And then when I kind of sat down, I was like, oh, wait, I don't think I want to do it that way. Um, and then I texted a friend who's extremely clever and said, I can't do this, right? And he said, why can't you do that? I'm like, okay, maybe. So I'm at that point where I'm sort of, um, I'm typing, but I'm doing it as though I'm hoping not to be seen by the words, you know, like I'm hiding behind a door um, in a, you know, slightly ropey thriller and I'm just kind of peering through the gap to see what the crooks are up to. That's very much the way I'm writing at the moment. I'm sort of peering through a crack at the words going, well, maybe if, and I quite often do that. It's like, well, you know, if I'm only writing the first 50, 100, 150 words, it doesn't matter if they're wrong because I'll just delete them tomorrow. That's all right. And then the next day I read them back and I go, well, they probably won't end up in the final version, but I could just keep going for a little bit. And then suddenly you find you've got 10,000 words and you have to admit you've started a book. So I'm hoping that'll all work out. We'll see. Natalie, this would be a great place to wrap it up. Thank you for such a, a fascinating and candid interview and not least for doing this right uh, down the barrel of your deadline as well, which you have my... Um, I know, I've still got a thousand words to write. You have, my, you, you have my admiration for that. Well, look, this has been a really great discussion and wishing you all the best with um, your current book and with everything going forward. Hello, it's us again. Following our new format, Simon, what was one of the takeaways or your main takeaway from the interview with Natalie? She's the first, I think, comedian or someone who performs stand-up on uh, we've had on the show, which is really good. I was conscious that she's very, she was quite performative in the way she spoke. You sensed that she was kind of very used to being in front of an audience, and obviously we were doing this in a in a different format. So I felt the kind of performative nature of her writing was something that I thought interesting. Um, what about you, Rachel? Yeah, I think it uh, was interesting when she talked about how writing stand-up influences the way she writes now you know you really carefully weight every word and you think about the rhythm of sentences um I particularly liked her analogy that writing is like running sometimes it's really really hard and you just have to get to the end of the paragraph or to the next lamppost or whatever that as someone who struggles with writing that really resonated with me um 
definitely one to fit in our uh, metaphors about writing jar that we should be should be keeping. Um, anyway, <laughs> for Rachel, the, for the merch, exactly, coming for, down for the line. The potential APM merch. Um, Rachel, what have you been up to? I have been working on my course. We're in a term on industry, so I'm learning lots of things about the film value chain and, you know, lots of terminology that is completely new to me. Um, and yeah, still tracking along with other things. How about you? Um, I've been mostly preparing for the launch of my book, which I think I can I can talk about now. We'll, we'll talk about it more at another time, but um, when this goes out, yeah. In, <laughs> in yeah, some depth. Yeah, um, <laughs> in some depth, indeed. Rachel has gamely agreed to interview me about it. Um, but yeah, that will be out. It's called The Changing of the Guard. It's about the British Army since 9-11, and it should be published two days after this goes out, which is exciting. So that's mostly what I've been up to. Um, and finalising some magazine stuff and uh, things like that. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aiken. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Fatalizer. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. You can support us on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via email, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.